Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles, California. It is good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right, wherever you happen to be listening. And I'm very excited about today's episode. My guest is Pete Sue, author of the award-winning short story collection entitled, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. Things that happen when you're in some ways like pre-verbal it's well it is a lot harder to put language to it because it's much more like a sensory or I guess emotional or relational kind of impact on you those things are my obsessions as a writer so that's that's why it comes out in my book it probably will come out in everything I write in the foreseeable future one of the things I do wonder about is the idea that like there was and there probably still is some ideology around like keeping secrets as a way to protect children so that's like that definitely was something in my family i don't want to general overgeneralize the cultures but i'm sure every culture has some part some population within it that believes that and i don't know if, i don't think that helps kids actually in the end you know like keeping secrets because the thing is like for me for sure I still felt all the damage of whatever happened, you know, everything that happened, it's still a part of me, it's ingrained into my, into, into my body. All right, folks, that was Pete Sue, author of the short story collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. It's available now from Red Hen Press. If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home won the Red Hen Press Fiction Prize. It is also the official November pick of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It is edited by Joseph Grantham. I founded it all the way back in 2006. It has its own monthly book club. I interview the book club authors on this podcast, so you can read the book and then listen or listen 
and then read the book. It's up to you. If you want to sign up for the book club, go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. Today's episode is brought to you by author and publishing industry expert Lee Stein. On November 30th, 2022, just a couple of weeks away, she will be hosting an online class called Book Talk for Writers. You can find out more about it at booktalkforwriters.com. So if you're asking yourself, what is Book Talk? Book Talk is, to put it simply, a corner of the internet where readers create original short form video content about books. It happens on TikTok. That's why they call it Book Talk. And you know what TikTok is, right? It's a video-based social media platform. And during the pandemic, Book Talk exploded in popularity. Adult fiction sales are up, broadly speaking, and Book Talk authors account for 75% of that growth. In other words, Book Talk is the most powerful word of mouth engine that the book publishing industry has ever seen. It's a phenomenon. Do you know how to use it? If not, you should attend this course with Lee Stein. Check it out. Visit booktalkforwriters.com to sign up. I'm going to do it. I'm going. So you can see me there. And you should know the top authors on BookTok sold 20 million copies of their books last year. This is no joke. Lee Stein's upcoming online seminar is for writers who want to understand what makes TikTok different from other social media platforms and how best to use it. Lee will explain which genres, which literary genres do best on BookTok and how writers can use TikTok to promote their work. She will show the results from a real outreach campaign that she did this summer to BookTok influencers. You do not, I should mention, have to become a content creator to participate in BookTok. Students of this online course will walk away with a list of resources, including best accounts to follow on TikTok. The class is happening live over Zoom online on November 30th. And listen, if you cannot attend live, if for some reason you're busy on November 30th, you can still sign up because the class will be recorded. You can watch the entire thing after the fact at your own convenience. This is a great opportunity. Again, I will be there and we can learn about book talk together. Register right now at booktalkforwriters.com. One more time, that's booktalkforwriters.com. All right, so before we get started today with Pete Sue, I do have some mail to go over. First up, I have a letter that has to do with this past Sunday's episode. And it comes from one of the guests on Sunday. His name, again, is S.A. Griffin, poet, performance artist, publisher. And as many of you know, I did a roundtable discussion with three people on Sunday, S.A. Griffin being one of them. And we talked about the beat generation. We talked about beat poetry, beat literature, the legacy, the history, and so on and so forth. And at one point in the conversation, we were talking about Jack Kerouac and his infamous writing of the novel On the Road, the big scroll, you know, it's literary legend at this point. 
And the debate was whether or not Kerouac was under the influence when he wrote that scroll. I said no, based on a foggy memory of a Kerouac biography that I read years ago. S.A. Griffin speculated that Kerouac might have been on Benzedrine, which is an amphetamine. It would make sense considering the guy wrote the entire novel or a draft of it in three weeks. And after the fact, S.A. was kind enough to cross-check. He talked to uh, a friend of his who's an expert on Jack Kerouac, and it turns out, for the record, that I was correct. (laughs) Jack Kerouac was not under the influence when he wrote that scroll. Uh, At least he was not under the influence of any major narcotic. He was not drinking. He was stone sober, and he was drinking a ton of coffee. He was staying with a woman, I don't know her name, but she was a girlfriend of his or a friend of his, and he was holed up in her place and she just brought him cups of black coffee. And this has always interested me. I think this is why it probably stuck in my brain. The fact that he wrote this thing, which is the thing for which he is best known on the rare occasion when he was not intoxicated, because the same is true if I'm recalling correctly, about Hunter S. Thompson and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I'm not entirely sure if if Thompson was stone sober, but for him, as I recall, he was unusually sober when he wrote Fear and Loathing in a similar similar push. I don't think it was three weeks, but I think he wrote that fairly quickly up against deadline, as was his tendency. It was always last minute, but... I think it's instructive to know that these books that are in the canon and which are associated with authors who are themselves associated with substance abuse, uh, their best work or their most remembered work happened to be written in stretches of time when they were the least intoxicated. You know, maybe there's a lesson in that. So anyway, uh, thanks to S.A. Griffin for the clarification. My next letter comes from a listener named Paul, who says, Brad Listy, on your recent podcast featuring Lynn Steger Strong, there was some brief discussion about therapists with mention of a general disdain for therapists who take insurance. Specifically mentioned was Blue Cross. This seemed to be a common aversion between you and Lynn. Is this something you can speak to a little more? I see a therapist who takes my private insurance and she's certainly done me much good. I don't understand what the aversion would be to such a therapist and or the appeal of superiority of one who only takes private pay patients. I suspect the aversion is more automatic than actual, but I'd appreciate it if you could touch on it. I listen to your podcast regularly, either on my treadmill or on the long drives to and from my little cabin in the Ozarks. Signed, Paul. So thanks for writing, Paul, and uh, I'm happy to clarify this. I think we were kind of making a joke, and the joke is not on people who see therapists or people, more specifically, who see therapists who accept health insurance. (laughs) The joke is on the insurance companies themselves and how tedious they can be to deal with. And that's pretty much it. Uh, I think all therapists should take health insurance in an ideal world, but... What I often hear about is that therapists who have a robust clientele and who are hard to get to because they're popular, 
tend not to take insurance because they don't like to deal with the red tape. They don't want to deal with the you know insurance company bureaucracy any more than we do. So that's it. It was just a joke. I don't think it has anything to do with people who are seeing therapists and getting help from them. I think that's wonderful. It's just a a commentary on the tedium of insurance companies. And it sounds like your experience has been positive overall. So I'm happy to hear that. And thanks for listening and thanks for writing. All right, some quick business before we begin. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, if you want to share a story or offer some feedback, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. And this podcast is a listener-supported endeavor. I need to mention that. It is free. Today marks the 800th episode of this show over an 11-year stretch of time. And I count on the support of listeners to keep it going because I offer it up freely. I don't have any paywalls. You can get to every single episode free of charge. But if you are a regular listener or if you are somebody who listens and really get something from the show, I would really appreciate it if you would support the show at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. I have tried to make it as easy as possible to support the show. You can do so for as little as $1 a month. That's it. Drop a dollar in the hat. That's it. Or if you have a, a bigger budget, $3 a month, five, 10, 20. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch, t-shirt, coffee mug, tote bag. You can get a book club subscription. So please support the show if you can at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Next is my email newsletter. If you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, it is free. You can sign up at this show's official website, otherppl.com, or at my official website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. And basically, it amounts to an enumerated list. That's it. It's simple. It's once a week. I will not inundate you with email. It'll just go to your inbox once a week. And I share some things that I've been reading and finding interesting or finding funny or compelling for some reason. And you can check them out. It's that simple. Next up, this show has a YouTube channel and I am now doing video episodes. You can now watch the Other People podcast. So the show has had a YouTube channel for a long time, but previously it was just audio. Now it's video. So if you want to see me, if you want to see Pete Sue, if you want to see my guests and watch the show, go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and when you find the channel, subscribe to the channel. Click the subscribe button. It's free. I am also now on TikTok. Speaking of TikTok, so I've been putting clips from recent episodes up on TikTok. If you are on TikTok, please follow the Other People podcast. I don't think the the show has a single follower so far. A lot of the, the clips have been viewed thousands of times, but nobody's following me. I don't know how to TikTok. You can be my first follower. This is your opportunity. So search for the show on TikTok. I think the handle is uh, otherppl.podcast. And finally, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It published just six months ago. And it is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. 
I narrate the audiobook. It is a work of autofiction. If you want to know more about me, this, this is your chance. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Uh, go get your copy if you're so inclined. So my guest today is Pete Sue, author of the new story collection entitled If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. It is available from Red Hen Press, and it is the official November pick of the TNB Book Club. This is a very impressive collection, and there are a couple of stories that are just burned into my brain. You'll hear us talk about them. But it depicts the lives of characters, particularly young people, on the margins, and it, it is powerfully insightful, and dramatic and funny and unexpected and all of the stuff of great storytelling. This is a, an excellent beginning for Pitsu over these past couple of years to a very promising literary career. And I'm very happy to have him here on the program. His other book is an experimental chapbook entitled There Is a Man. That one is available from Tolson Books. Pitsu's writing has been featured all over the place in the Los Angeles Review, the Bear Life Review, Friction Magazine, Faultline, the LA Review of Books, and elsewhere. He was a 2017 PEN America Emerging Voices Fellow and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. He mostly grew up right here in Southern California where he lives to this day. So let's get started with today's conversation. Here I am with Pete Sue, and one more time, his new story collection is called If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. Well, the collection began as like an attempt to write a novel. I think a lot, I don't know if that happens with a lot of short story writers. You start out wanting to write a novel, but the, the form is so big and overwhelming that you sort of end up writing shorter form as a result of the bigness of the project. So the first story that I wrote in this collection was... Uh, a penny short, but that was a novel. That was a, actually like a 100 page novel manuscript that wasn't going anywhere. And so when I trashed it, I ended up picking like that one, that one story just stuck with me. It was like the one thing that I just loved and I didn't want to let go of. So I started, you know, just trying to shorten it, give it a, its own little arc and then submitting it as its own like standalone piece. And that ended up being uh, the first story that to get published in this collection, the first story that sort of became like a, like an anchor point for the rest of the stories, with the, at least thematically. And that character in that story became another protagonist in another earlier story from the brush, uh, Frantic Rustling. So that was that's the same character. And that's the beginning point of it anyway. Was that the point at which you thought to yourself like, oh, okay. Like this, I'm writing stories. Or was that like a one-off and then you were like, oh, I'm going to, you know, this will be a one-off and I'm going to go try my novel again now. It was always the idea to write a novel. So that's like, that's what I was always thinking. But along the way, though, I kept writing stories and I was taking classes at UCLA Extension. Um, the the short story classes just seemed easier to, to workshop in because I took, a, I I took an, a novel writing class too, but it just was kind of, it's just hard to get traction because you're just reading like a chapter here and there of everybody's work. People are reading a chapter here and there of your work. So the the whole process of learning how to write like uh, short form fiction was just a lot stronger for me, you know, it, at least in, in any formal setting. So I just kept writing stories along the way and then more and more stories started to get published. They were starting to 
to fit thematically together and that's that's how the that's how short story collections became more my early forte as a writer i still haven't finished a, a, a publishable novel yet so i'm still working on that Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Do you feel like the process of learning how to write short, short fiction has maybe improved your chops for the novel? Because I think there is something to be gained from learning the compression learning how to get in and out of a story and to write in the short form that can carry over to the writing of a novel. There are lessons learned, are there not? There must be, I think. Just in terms of like working on, well, one of the things is working on individual protagonist story arcs. Like I think in, in a short form, you really boil that down very tightly. So there's like one character with one thing to do and then one thing happens. So you really kind of, you strip everything else away and you get to that. So that's been helpful. I, I'm not necessarily like a, a plot-driven reader or writer. So learning that helped a lot. Um, I think one thing I've noticed, you know, I think like short stories make for better movies because they're just a much cleaner arc. Usually, you know, they're much easier to kind of um, capture in, in, uh, in a visual medium, at least in a, and especially in a one, one or two hour time frame. Uh, I think the thing I struggle. Wait, wait, wait! I, I got to stop you. I want to yeah. stop you because that's interesting to hear. You. It's interesting to hear you say that because I had that very thought, especially when I was reading Korean Jesus. Uh-huh. I told you before we came on. I felt like Korean Jesus and astronauts were really powerful stories for me as a reader. Both of them cinematic. Both of them maybe more plot driven in a traditional sense than some of the other stories, which are more character studies or something. But I felt, I felt, I, t- I thought to myself like, wow, I would love to see Korean Jesus made into a film, like expanded on. <laughs> um, is that something you've thought about? I've definitely thought about stuff like that a lot. So well, one of the things that happened when I started out trying to write fiction was I was looking for other writers in LA to, uh, to just share work with. You know, I didn't even really know the concept of workshopping at the time. And it was like I didn't know any fiction writers at all. And I know there's like thousands of fiction writers in L.A. now. But at the time, everybody that I ran into that was a writer was working on a screenplay. So those were the early workshops I was in. So a lot of the feedback I got were, was uh, about, about plot was one thing and also about staging, which I didn't think about much as a, um, as a fiction writer. I think a lot of the complaints were my, my stories read like, 
talking heads, just like two, um, you know, disembodied heads having a conversation. So a lot of stuff that I learned early on with these more um, visually driven writers was like, you know, where where is stuff happening? Where are people in relation to relationship to each other in the setting? What is the action? What is the movement? So maybe that's why some of those stories come out more cinematically. I think there's something to be gained from that kind of cross-pollination. I've always been a fan. Like, I think that was the, I mean, I have complicated feelings about my graduate school experience, but one of the things that I did take from it that I liked quite a bit was its emphasis, and I went to USC, uh, yeah. is its emphasis on, on cross-pollination. Like, you had to, in order to get the degree, study screenwriting and comedy writing and nonfiction, and, you know, like, you did it all, basically. And I think there's something to be gained. I think especially for writers of literary fiction, it doesn't hurt to spend time in the company of commercial screenwriters or to read books like Save the Cat or whatever and to learn the mechanics mm -hmm. of story structure in a really defined way. Like that can only serve you, even if you don't use it in a one-for-one -one sense. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And especially, you know, Growing up in L.A., living in L.A. now, it's just like we have so many resources in um, the, these other these other fields like TV and, and film, but also music. Uh, Save the Cat is actually like one of my templates that I use. I, I don't follow it at all uh, in terms of like I don't set out to write on those beats. But like every story I write, I take that template and just kind of put it next to it, you know, just to see like, OK, does my story have some kind of arc? And it never lines up exactly, but it just gives me a sense of there's something traditionally three-act going on in my story where I can see, okay, this is like what a, a typical human might expect to see in a story. And it doesn't work out perfectly, but it gives me, like, it gives me a hint if something's not working. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, like, if, if nothing else, books like that make you have to confront the fact that as human beings we are hardwired to some degree to expect certain things from our fictions whether they be movies television shows or um, books you know whether it's fiction or non and I don't know about you but for me as a literary fiction writer I can sometimes lose sight of that it just helps me get back into like a more service oriented mindset. Like what is the reader experiencing here? <laughs> you know, as opposed to like, what do I want? What do I want to work out yeah. psychologically on the page or whatever, you know? Yeah. I think there's some, there's some, there's a lot of usefulness to it. Cause I think if it's just up to me, I'm just writing about things that, um, that I like to, I like to imagine feelings. I like to investigate. I'm not particularly interested in like a, like a plot driven story. Um, but I, I understand that that's a basic, well, at least I, I kind of believe that that's a basic human expectation in story. I've read these, you know, these books about the psychology of storytelling and how like, you know, like early man used stories as like information gathering or, or, um, or like how to manuals, basically, like how to, how to deal with novel situations. And so that's maybe there's, maybe there's something to that, that buried in our psyches is some expectation that we're going to possibly learn something by paying attention. And that's why there's some drive to pay attention to storytelling. It may or may not be true, but it's close enough. No, I'm ready to, I'm fully ready to believe that. <laughs> like the ancestral, like deep biology of yeah. uh, storytelling, you know, it might be worth thinking about, but 
I uh, I also want to talk to you when we're you know while we're on the the subject of like the origin story of your collection about the process of assembling a story collection because you know we, we as readers get the finished product when we read short story collections and as a writer it seems likely that there are stories that don't make the cut it's sort of like an album right like not every song that you record in the studio makes it onto the record or their b-sides or something right. but there there is the issue of what to put in and what to leave out and you can just you know you can correct me if this is not the case for your book but then there's also the issue of sequencing which i think matters greatly to the success or failure of a story collection on the page but which doesn't maybe get talked about as often as it should. Sequencing really matters, no? Yeah, this is actually kind of an interesting story to me anyway. This this collection, I've been writing it since probably the first story I think I published in 2015. So I've been writing it for a little while, but at least writing the stories that are in it for a little while. And when I first started submitting it as a book, um, it was not working very well. And I think I didn't I didn't know why it wasn't working. I, I was sending it out. I would just basically pick like my 10 to 15 favorite stories and put them all together and sent it out. And there wasn't really any interest, uh, like barely any even like, you know, um, like we like this, but, you know, it just doesn't work for us right now kind of stuff. And I wasn't sure what was wrong with it. And so I started taking it apart. And then uh, I started looking at other story collections that I felt were very successful and I think a lot of times those are those are things that are marketed sort of as collections slash novels or um, novels and stories like Olive Kitteridge or Visit from the Goon Squad. One collection that really is short stories that I just totally love and almost like it's one of those books I wish I had I, I could have written if I could. Uh, Otessa Moshfegs, uh, Homesick for Another World. And so I was looking at what makes these stories work, right? Or these books work. And that's when I realized, you know, that's when I started thinking about stuff like thematically things have to fit. Also, like how stories move from one story to the other has to fit. It's like when someone's reading something straight through, it can't. Well, one thing I was noticing, it's it doesn't work if it's confusing. You know, with like one story to the next, is this the same protagonist? Are we in the same story or same timeline? Um so there has to be some like either connectivity if they are connected or some like uh, like discernibility if they're not connected. So things like that really went into my mind. And so I started taking the, the collection apart and I took out like all of my very experimental stories. So I had written like a bunch of kind of experimental, almost um, prose poetry-esque kind of stuff and took all those out, uh, sent that out separately as a chat book and that actually got picked up first um, just because, I don't know, just maybe because it's just more weird and unusual. So that came out as a little chat book. And then I put... What's that called? That's called There is a Man. It came out on uh, on Tolson in uh, 2021, so a couple years ago now. And so that, and that was really fun. It was just like, you know, it was like these stories, there was no pressure at all. It was the middle of the pandemic. Like, you know, there was no, there was no, no events at all with it. Maybe like a couple of online things, but it just came out. And, you know, I could tell people about it, but there was no sense that I had had to do anything with it. So that was pretty, that was like an easy, soft way to get into publishing. And then, right. Yeah, totally. And then, but then this, this current book though, still wasn't quite working. Um, I was still sending it out and it was still like not getting any interest. Um, I decided pretty early on, I was going to send it to 
like small presses and university presses and contests and stuff. Uh, I didn't think it was quite, I didn't want to, I just didn't feel like I could go the route of like querying agents and then sending it to big publishers. Um, it, and then the agents that I had contacted, even if they liked me when they found out I had a short story collection, they were not interested anyway. So I just figured I, I just go this route and this seems like the path that'll probably work out best for me. And this is getting to be a long story. I don't know how, uh, how. No, it's it's good though. It's good. It's I, I think it's useful to people who are probably you know who might be in a similar situation, yeah. um, because I think, especially in apprenticeship years or whatever you want to call them, so many writers do work in the short form, and you sort of amass a pile of stories. But I think the the salient point is that that's not enough. Yeah, <laughs> to make a collection to make a collection cohere and to make it feel like a satisfying total experience for the reader. So. I'm interested in hearing you talk more about getting there. Like yeah. it came down to what? Sequencing? It came down to recognizing that there were, were recurring characters in this book because there are and how to, how to handle that. Yeah, no, it came down to all those things for sure. And uh, one of the things was the sequencing was kind of hard for me to hard for me to nail down. And there's, uh, there's another local author, uh, C.L. Jew. She had written a book called Cake Time. A few years yeah, back. Yeah, I know her. You know, okay, you know CL. And she had also, her book was also published by Red Hen. And her book is a novel in stories. It's, but it's one protagonist all the way through. And it starts, I believe, with the protagonist as a teenager. And it kind of moves through her journey through adulthood. And in, I think middle age is somewhere where it ends. And it just seemed like it's so readable, you know, in that format. And it's just like a very simple solution. Like if you just follow the uh, the protagonist chronologically, like everybody gets that. Nobody's confused by that. I didn't have a single protagonist. You know, this character Reggie comes back a lot, especially in the second half, but he's not in every story. But I thought, well, it doesn't really matter. I can just chronologically format this with the protagonists of each story. So that's what I landed on. And it really, like when I started reading it that way, it really felt like something that was not just readable, but actually kind of like fun and entertaining even to follow, like, even though they're different characters, like follow different protagonists that chronologically age from story to story. Yeah. That, sometimes that's enough for a reader, even if it's like a, it's like an intuitive sense of narrative momentum along a timeline. It makes the read so much more satisfying. It feels like you're getting somewhere from A to Z, you know, as opposed to kind of jumping back and forth. I, you, I, you know, it's like, I guess the point is that these solutions are sometimes like really common sense and simple and they make such a big difference. And if you're looking for a way to structure a book, like maybe try chronologically. Exactly. Works, yep. you know? yeah, you don't, Why do we torture ourselves? Yeah. You don't have to get that fancy all the time. And I think a lot of times us uh, literary writers, it's there's a lot of complicated stuff going on already, just like the way we write and maybe even the way we think. And a few simple things to uh, like lay the path for the reader it makes a big difference. Because to me, it's easy to read my stories because I, I know them really well. But if you're encountering the fir- them for the first time, you know maybe it's like it's a, it could get a little could get a little hard to follow sometimes. And the stories aren't exactly like you're saying. Some of them are, are character studies, you know, more than more than plot plotted stories. So there's something like a little bit of handholding or a little bit of something to just, you know, some kind of like anchor to, to 
some something you don't have to worry about as you read something that has a lot of things to think about can be helpful. Uh, I learned that the hard way. I, I think that uh, these stories function so well as investigations into or explorations of people uh, who might be living on the margins or people who you know are part of the Asian diaspora and who are trying to find you know their way in this country with greater and lesser degrees of success but also I think more broadly speaking just you know telling the kinds of stories that don't often or don't often enough get told that's what I really appreciated about this you know it's like oh these are the kinds of lives that I haven't necessarily seen enough of in the culture, in fiction or in movie and tele, you know, uh, television storytelling. Was that part of the ambition for you? Like, did, was that an expressed like goal of yours? You know, as you were kind of formulating these stories, or is it something that you didn't necessarily define to yourself? And did, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, how much I of it do. was conscious? I think at some points is is very conscious um as a asian american writer and and um in literary fiction there's been a lot of really great stories told about the immigrant experience that's been like one of our our go-to uh subjects and i love those stories you know those were those were like what made gave uh gave asian american fiction kind of a foothold and then you know it grew from there and it's still a very like rich subject to, to mine for, for storytelling but it's not necessarily like the story that I gravitate towards as a writer so I'm not um, I am an immigrant but I, I immigrated when I was a baby um, and I you know even just being an Asian person in America you have a, a lot of experience of otherness that's not related to being an immigrant necessarily um, so in some ways, I, I, from time to like a lot of times, I'll admit, you know, I purposefully tried not to tell immigrant stories, even though I am an immigrant. My parents are immigrants. Uh, I grew up around a lot from of immigrants. From Taiwan? From Taiwan, yeah, exactly. From Taiwan in 72. So I immigrated in 72. Uh, but I think there's a lot of experience around, you know, being Asian in America that's not necessarily directly like that specific narrative. Um, and it's of course it's gonna be like uh, at least tangential to a lot of my stories. Like a lot of my characters are either immigrants or their or immigration has affected their lives in some ways. But I didn't centralize it, and that was a conscious decision on my on my part. I didn't centralize that as the main narrative of my stories. And it's nothing, you know. Not, again, like those are the stories that sort of like set that set set sail for. Set, set sail for the Asian American literary um, storytelling, right? Like when Amy Tan wrote Joy Luck Club or when that came out, it would it like opened up the opened up the, the floodgates for for Asian American fiction. Well, no, that makes no that that makes it uh, clearer for me because you think about these stories, like so many of the lives that you're depicting in these stories are affected in some way by the immigration experience, but it feels remo- it feels at a remove. And so you're capturing people who are existing in the aftermath of it, which is yeah. like a new space to explore, right? That's, yeah, that's exactly, that's a great way to, to, to describe it. Because I've actually, like, told, like, uh, in my description of this 
collection myself have called it like post-apocalyptic in some in some sense emotionally or right. relationally post-apocalyptic and that not that well actually in some ways immigration is like an apocalypse it's the end of one world and the be setting off into another one right like after it's the after the after the end um so i feel like my stories are about well that what's the after part not not necessarily the during part and Right. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, especially maybe for Americans, because this country, uh, you know, everybody's an immigrant here except for indigenous people, um, if you go back far enough. Yep. And I'm always fascinated by how relatively quickly, from a generational sense, people and families can assimilate. Like, I think my great-grandfather came over on my dad's side from Sicily and my great-grandmother. And so my grandfather was first generation. My dad was second generation. I'm third generation. I feel, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, yeah. it was a pretty, I don't feel any, like, I, I mean, I, I have some affinity for Italy and, you know, but it's not like I lived the experience of my great grandfather no, <laughs> who no. like didn't speak a word of English and came over on a boat, yeah. like impoverished and the whole thing. And like, I, I think that the lives of the people, you talk about it as an apocalypse, which is a great way to think about it. The lives of the people who actually make the move, man, that's got to be intense. You know, like that's got to be a really radical experience to leave everything you know and come to a place where like maybe you don't speak a word of, of English and you just have to figure it out. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. And you have no resources. You have no like um, no built in, no expectation of a support system you have to find it or create it yourself so and i think it's really interesting the thing you're talking about how compressed the time frame is in america like within well this country's been around for like 100 250 years and it's like things have like things happen so fast and we kind of lose sight of like wow it wasn't that long ago that you know this this country was totally different um and it's still still shifting really fast and in terms of like nationally, that's a big deal. But like the thing you're talking about in terms of just individual families, that's like a huge shift from three generations. The, um, the experience can be completely different. Like somebody can go from being like, uh, basically considered like a non-American to be, to being indistinguishable from any other American in three generations. That's right. kind of amazing. Well, listen, uh, yeah, I mean, I like, I read, this is part of the history that fascinates me because this is a perfect example of it is uh, the Sicilians, the Italians who showed up. Uh, my family's roots are in Louisiana. I don't know how you go from Sicily to Louisiana, but that, that's where they went. And uh, Italians were considered less than. Yeah. You know, they were, they were uh, discriminated against heavily. I think there was even in like New Orleanian history, some kind of like massacre or race riot relative to Italians. I felt none of that. And I mean, I'm a big blend, so I'm not just Italian, but like I, that was a surprise to me is the point reading about it all these years later and, uh, you know, realizing, oh shit, you know, like also Catholic, you know, like John mm -hmm. F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president. That used to be like a big stopper for people. So things change and hopefully for the better, but I think you're right though. The compressed way that it happens in a, in a broad sense is is something that 
I, I guess is encouraging. <laughs> Maybe it's nice to think. It's nice to think about it. Like it's nice to think about it and go, oh, this is happening rel relatively fast yeah. in a universal sense. So even if things are super shitty right now, like maybe things will be better in a hundred years <laughs> it's, in, a, in a really yeah. dramatic way. I mean, I, I think of it in, in both ways. Like it could go either way. Like how quickly things can improve is amazing or, you know, change progressively. But like we've seen things could change really quickly in the other direction too. So that's, right. that's sort of like the world we're in now where well, I guess America is at the forefront of it, but the whole planet is like this now where things can change extremely quickly in any direction. And um, so, yeah, so there's optimism in there, but there's also some fear. Well, but, you know, this also feels like something that your stories are imbued with. And I guess it would be impossible for them not to. Maybe all of our stories are imbued with this, mm -hmm. like this pressurized environment that we live in now where things feel like they could tip one way or the other and there's a real existential air to the times that we're living in. I think I feel an undercurrent of that in all of these stories and all of these lives. I don't know. Maybe that was more intuitive than explicit or was it explicit? You know? um, I think it's definitely like part of my, my worldview. And so it would probably, it'd probably be in every story in some way that, that uh, things can change very quickly and, you know, something small can happen and really shift your, Something, not even necessarily, but something can happen and change the trajectory of your life um, forever. Uh, and it could be something that either came into your life or it can be a decision you made. But that's uh, sort of how I think a lot, you're right. A lot of writers probably do see that. And it might be something that comes up a lot in short stories where the, the maybe the idea is we try to get to the one one thing that happens that changes that person's life forever. And that's maybe some people's definition of a short story. Um, I took that to heart and I feel like, yeah, that's what makes short stories work. Like the one thing happens and everything's different afterwards. So, so the, some of the stories are, you know, a lot of these stories are, as I said earlier, depicting lives like out on the margins or depicting lives that we don't see often enough in our fictions. And I want to have you read from one of the stories in particular. I think it's called Astronauts. And if you could just set this up, just give listeners kind of an overview of what this story is about, and then we can get into the excerpt and we'll, we'll talk about it from there. Sure. Yeah, Astronauts is actually an immigration story, the most overt immigration story in the book. Um, there's a character, a Chinese-American, the protagonist is a Chinese-American guy. Douglas Lee is his name. And he's a smuggler. He doesn't usually smuggle humans, but because he's gotten into some situation with his bosses, he has to do this job. So he's got a bunch of uh, Chinese undocumented workers in the, in the belly of his uh, tractor trailer, and they're trying to move them from Mexico into, into, um, into America. So, and this is them uh, heading up into the, into, onto the border. It's four miles to the border checkpoint. Douglas is wired. He is both drunk and high. His temples are tingling. His eyes aren't blinking. Blink, motherfucker, blink. The stereo is turned up loud. Douglas turns it up even more. The speakers start to crack. It's still American rock and roll. Douglas shakes his head and slaps his face to clear his thoughts to get ready to perform for the border agents. 
A song comes on that Douglas knows. He sings along. He gets the words wrong. He's surprisingly self-conscious. Chucho seems to know the correct words, but he doesn't make a big deal out of it, and Douglas appreciates this. Douglas takes out a travel-sized mouthwash and takes a swig of it. He passes it to Chucho, who does the same. Both men swish the mouthwash around and then gargle. Douglas spits his out the window. Chucho follows suit. Douglas then fishes the empty cocaine vial out of his pocket and tosses it out the window as well. He does the same with the beer cans, one after another. As they go, some of them catch the wind and whap against the side of the cargo container. The song they were singing along to ends. Douglas sees something from his side mirror. Headlights. The headlights are closing in on them. Fuck is that? Chucho turns his head to look out the rearview mirror, and Douglas sticks his head out the window a little bit to turn and look back. A bright spotlight turns on and shines into his eyes. Chucho says, Federales. A federal police pickup truck is behind them. It flashes its light bar, red and blue and white. The brightness cuts through the dark. Douglas squints and bangs a fist on the dashboard. It's fine, says Chucho. Stay cool, boss. Chucho points to the cargo and makes a shush gesture, and Douglas quiets down. He listens. The noise has stopped. Behind them, the police instruct them in Spanish and then English to pull over. Chucho downshifts the tractor trailer, going backwards through the gears. They slow and come to a stop on the dirt shoulder. Then the police pick up pulls in front of them. Chucho says, I'll deal with this. Douglas holds his hand out to Chucho, hands him a small roll of $100 bills. Chucho looks disappointed, but Douglas doesn't give him any more. Chucho puts the money in his pocket just as one officer comes to his window. Another officer stands underneath Douglas's window. This one is holding a shotgun. In Spanish, the first officer says, What's in the cargo? Chucho says, Tomatoes. Tomatoes, really? That's an extravagant transport for tomatoes. They're special, artisanal. What? Special, says Chucho. They are special tomatoes. The officer, with the shotgun, starts to walk over to the cargo container. He taps the shotgun against the container wall. That second officer says, Jefe, there's something strange about this cargo. The officer with the shotgun waits for a response. And Douglas smiles at him and tries to act as if he's slightly bored by the process. He eyes the container through his mirror. He listens. The hum of the machinery rumbles on. But the workers stay quiet. It's soundproof, he tells himself. It's soundproof, but Douglas hears something, he thinks. He hears something. A voice, a knock, a breath, breathing, breathing, and then nothing. Douglas reaches behind his back, feeling the handle of his revolver. He feels a coldness. The coldness starts in his arms and moves into his middle. Douglas has only rarely fired his gun and never at a living thing. Chucho puts a hand on Douglas's elbow. Douglas looks at Chucho, and Chucho shakes his head. The officer under Chucho's window says, 
You think we need to see your tomatoes? This is an invitation for a bribe. Chucho says, You're welcome to, but why waste time? The officer says, True. It's been a long night. My partner has been itching to get home to his new wife. Chucho laughs, and the officer under Chucho's window laughs. The officer with the shotgun underneath Douglas's window does not laugh. It's not clear if he hasn't heard the conversation or if he disapproves of them joking about his wife. The officer under Chucho's window gestures for him to get out of the cabin. Chucho opens his door. It swings heavy and then clicks open. He steps out. Douglas waits. The officer with the shotgun keeps the flashlight pointed at Douglas. Douglas tries not to let this annoy him, but it is annoying. He squints and tries to look the officer in the face. He knows this is dumb. The officer isn't going to want to be seen by Douglas, to be recognizable by him. But Douglas is drawn to the illumination. The other man's face framed by the police truck's spotlights, like a halo. I don't know this man, thinks Douglas. He could kill me, and he could help me. And I don't know him, and I never will. Wow. That's probably the most upsetting story in the collection <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, the, 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 just the, you know, the brutality. There's a brutality to uh, the lived experience of the protagonist that I, I actually was happy to see on the page because you see these stories of human smuggling you know, in the news, and some of them can be pretty horrific. Yeah. And it seems like the kind of thing that should be told. You know, these stories, like the human aspect of these stories. Like, who are these people mm -hmm. in these transport trucks trying to get across the border? And I, I think there was, you know, something in either Texas or Mexico, somewhere near the border, not too long ago, where they found this truck, yeah, right? in Texas. Did you, yeah. did you see this story? Yeah. And there were like, you know, I don't know how many bodies in it, but it was just horrific. Yeah. Can you just talk about maybe the origin story for, for this one? Like, was, a, was there another story you had read, or was there something you had seen in the news that sparked it? Or I mean, it really it did start with the, the story of, uh, of undocumented immigrants being smuggled in a tomato truck. Like, that was, a, that was an actual news story uh, maybe 10 years ago. It was stuck in my head, like, damn, these, like, they're, these are human beings being shipped, you know, as if they're, like, like cargo or product you know and that that was really the that was really the start of it tried to imagine like you know who who would be involved in a situation like this i didn't really have like any personal experience knowing how this kind of stuff happens but trying to look into like well who who does this kind of stuff how do people get involved in this sort sort of uh i guess work or industry you know which is treated as i always think like when i hear stories like this in the news or you hear about these coyotes who are bringing people across the border on foot, you know, like walking like however many miles through the desert, uh, you know, just like barely surviving, like kind of crawling across, yeah. across the desert yeah. to get here. And then you hear about people who are upset about people coming over the border. I'm always thinking to myself, well, listen, if anybody's this desperate, if they're willing to pack themselves into a truck or walk across the desert at the risk of their own life, like maybe we should pay attention to the fact that they're this desperate. <laughs> right. Like where is our humanity? You know, I guess it just, 
it bothers me that uh, the dehumanization of it. And it's uh, like kind of like what we, we were touching on earlier. It's like how quickly we forget that we're not that far removed from our own ancestors surviving stuff like this to get here and to make a life for themselves. Um, we live on stolen land. Yeah, we all we do. Yep, we all live on stolen land. We, we're all complicit in that. And um, yeah, and also like our ancestors went through hell to to for just to just to have that opportunity to 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 plunder, I guess. But you know, it's just yeah, it's just like the the uh, the short memories. I, I'm not sure if it's a short memory or just as feeling like, well, hey, like we got ours, and then we don't want anybody else to get get theirs next i'm not sure what that is but as a nation of almost entirely of of immigrants it's like hard to imagine like like well we we celebrate what our ancestors went through to get here but we don't want to let other people have that same experience or that opportunity it's uh, it's a little sad yeah that's like that, that to me that's like you know close to as shitty as you can get as a human being it's pretty shitty. you know to be that yeah, to be that blind to the just basic reality and then to just get yours and then just want to like elbow other people in the face who are trying to, uh, you know, just trying to survive basically. And, you know, it's making me think too, like thinking about my own particular immigration history and my family, we all have this. And I think sometimes about like my work ethic and just like this innate sense of fear that I have around survival and sustenance <laughs> uh i think it's maybe it's just a human thing but i can sometimes theorize to myself that maybe it's like how far removed you are from the apocalypse generation if we can call mm. it that like you're a first generation american i am yeah so i imagine i imagine you had like a pretty visceral sense of like survival mode going on around you as your parents tried to assimilate and get a footing in this country i could even sense it like my dad was like up like 5 a.m. and like on his way to the office at 6 30 you know just crazy my whole life you know and I just I've that's the way that I've sort of characterized it to myself like oh this is some kind of inherited thing you know that gets passed down and maybe if I'm going to extend this theory further mm -hmm. like if you're like a, you know you live in like Connecticut or something and you can trace your ancestry all the way back to like this you know 1500s or something maybe you're a lot more relaxed <laughs> you know, like maybe there's more of a sense of like oh, of course i belong here you know my, my parents came over or my great 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 grandfather came over on the mayflower or some shit like that you know what i'm saying i do i do i do know what you're saying i think there is this um this real like you said visceral insecurity that comes with being a first or even second generation immigrant um and then for the kids of the immigrants, it's a different experience too, where like if you immigrate as an adult, you've already had a lifetime of at least cultural security behind you, you know, like, like language security, um, racial security behind you. So you come into a new situation and you're a fully formed adult facing that new situation. But when you're born into it or come into it as a, as a really young person, and it's like, well, you don't have that foundation to confront this stuff with. So you're like, uh, you're just, I guess, uh, like inside and out marginalized. So I think that's something that I, I thought about a lot as a kid. And it comes out, I think it comes out a lot in my stories. Um, 
I do notice like it does change. Like my kids are second generation Americans now and you know, they have their own insecurities about life for sure, just like anybody, but they don't have that racial cultural insecurity that I think, I just don't think they, they even understand it when we talk about it. Like they, you know, they're, they're worried about things socially too, but not, um, it's, it's hard to put exact words onto, but I think that's like, there's something in there that I'm trying, been trying to get at. And maybe that's why it shows up so much in my stories, that feeling. Mm. You know, I, I'm thinking back to, I had a conversation with, uh, an Asian American author named Abigail Wynn Rosewood earlier this year. And she, interestingly enough, was moving back. She's a Vietnamese mm-hmm. American and she's moving back to Vietnam. <laughs> she was in the process, which I could understand. I remember talking to her and like, she was kind of telling me about, you know, the cost of living and how beautiful it was there. And I was like, maybe I should go, (laughs) especially, I I will do that anytime anyone's moving somewhere. I'm like, maybe that's the place, you know, but I, I think in particular in the wake of the last, like, you know, five to seven years, you Mm -hmm. know, as crazy as things have gotten in this country in so many respects, like I'm wondering as somebody who's a first generation immigrant, has it ever occurred to you? Have you ever thought like, maybe I should go back or maybe Mm -hmm. like, do you feel like in (laughs) like rooted here enough or, or are you like, you know what, this place, this place is going to shit. Like maybe it would be better back in Taiwan. Yeah, I've definitely thought about that a lot, yeah, for sure. And we, my wife and I have talked about it a lot. She's uh, she's Korean, so we've talked about moving to South Korea, um, moving to Taiwan. Uh, I think the one we would never do it. It's just for fun, but it's just right. Yeah, but it is very enticing. I think there's a big language barrier because I I barely speak Mandarin, so I would. It would take, and my kids don't speak Mandarin at all, and my wife doesn't either. So it, yeah, but this is part of the uh, this is part of the immigration experience as well, like the encouragement in the assimilation process to sort of abandon your native tongue and to embrace English. Mm-hmm. This this is what this is what happened to uh, my family. My dad was not allowed to learn Italian. Wow. It was like no, 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 don't speak Italian. You know, like don't speak Italian. You speak English. Yeah. Like you're trying to, you know, to get uh, integrated. They'll discriminate against you if you speak Italian, right, right, basically. Right. And for me and my generation, I'm like, fuck, I would have loved to have known Italian. <laughs> you know, like, it would have been so great. But, you know, we, I guess like they're trying to do what's best in the times that they're in. They are. But then, then there's not really a, I mean, I guess there is probably some calculation about what, what will be lost. But you want to, you want to, in those situations, you want to lean towards the immediate survival, right? So... Like you lose something long term that might be valuable, but the immediate survival is the important thing. So whatever that is, it's mm-hmm. like if it's speaking English only, then that's that's going to help you today. So in terms of like, let's talk about the immediate survival uh, situation. You know, like you mm-hmm. came over as a baby. Your parents brought you over here as a baby. And you lived most all of your life in Los Angeles. I think I read that you bounced around a little bit in those early, like, baby years. Yeah, absolutely. So we were we were in Virginia at first. So that's where uh, that's where I my my brother was born in Virginia, Williamsburg. And then um, after my my birth father passed away when I, when we were really young, so my mom and I, my brother went, at that point, interestingly, did go back to Taiwan. So he went to Taiwan, lived with my grandparents for a while. And my mom and I... Wait, how old was he? He was just a baby, like an infant. not Probably not, like maybe one, just about one years old, 12 months old. Oh, wow. And so we were... What happened? And may I ask what happened to your dad? Um, he, he had passed away. And it's really, actually, it's, it's a hard question to answer because we don't have specific, like, 
clear answers to what happened. He died in a, in, in an accident. That's, that's, that's the, that's the primary story we were told, um, in Ohio. He was working at the time in Ohio, in Ohio. So there's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. And I think that's maybe at the core of, uh, some of my storytelling too, is like some things happen and you don't always, you don't always get to know like exactly what it was, but you feel the effects of it though. So something right. devastating happens and um, somebody might know the truth of it, but in any case, an entire, like that was maybe the a second apocalyptic moment that I, I think about a lot is like, so there's the apocalypse of losing or leaving your, your, uh, your birth world. And then there's like family systems apocalypses where some, something uh -huh. happens within the family Somebody dies, somebody leaves, and um, nothing is the same afterwards. So that was like the big. And you shift were a baby when this happened. I was probably about three. I think I was three. Okay. And it's just. And it was a workplace accident. It, I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. But it's not. And you just didn't. And nobody ever told you like what happened in a definitive way. Uh, yeah, I've I've heard different things about it, like that it was uh, that it was a. That it was a like a, a car accident of some kind, and then but then at some point there was some something going around that no no he it was actually an illness so, um, and there's not, we don't have like you know the paperwork behind it to find out exactly what it was so, right your poor mom, yeah my mom had a really hard time so she didn't know what to do um, she just had these two babies and she was alone, and I think she had a. Well, she could have just stayed. We could have just stayed in Virginia. So, like a lot of my 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 dad's family, my father's family were were there. They're still there, but I think my mom just didn't want to deal with anything and wanted a completely fresh start. So she packed up, but she also couldn't deal with having two kids. So I think she let my grandparents take my brother, and she and I moved to uh, Seattle. So we lived in Seattle for a couple of years, and then down to L.A. And then she met my stepdad. My brother joined back up with us, and I've been here ever since, like almost 45 years probably. Where in L.A.? San Gabriel Valley. So I grew up in a city called Arcadia. I live out here now, okay. too. Still live out here. Okay. Uh, wow. That's like, that's quite a story. And it's really sad, you know. I uh, like to get over here. Like it makes, I guess like hearing that makes the collection uh, may, like come into a little bit sharper focus you know mm. some of the energy in it and some of the stories you know come into a little bit um sharper focus but what did and then your brother came back to live with you like uh, what age was he at he was probably around four or five i'm not sure so one of the things that i oh, okay but no i was just gonna say i didn't know how long the gap was when he was in taiwan and then he comes back yeah. but it was just kind of getting situated once your mom got situated better she brought him back. Yeah, back yeah. Over yeah it, was, it was never intended to be a, a permanent thing. And did you like growing up in Arcadia? Uh, no, I did not like it at all. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> um, Arcadia. I mean, yeah, Arcadia is, is a really, like, nice town. It's, you know, it's very, it's, it's like, clean. The cops are very active. <laughs> so it's, uh, but at the, uh -huh. uh, but coming into Arcadia, uh, again, this was another sort of, it might inform something about my book as well it's like coming into arcadia it was a white town at first like when we moved here in the 80s early 80s it was almost entirely white 
but it was like on the precipice of becoming like a majority Asian, Asian American town. So that was when, when my family and I moved in here. We were one of the first Asian families in Arcadia that I knew of. Like when I first started school in Arcadia, it was first grade and there was one other Asian kid and he was a Japanese American kid. And, you know, we were like the two Asian kids in school. And by the time I graduated high school, I think it was about a third Asian American. And I believe now it's well over 50%, maybe even upwards of, you know, well, at least well over 50%, I'd say for sure. So that was a big transitional time for the city. And um, some people were cool with it and some people were not. So there was like, you know, and that was, uh, I think citywide, even outside of Arcadia, there was, there were a lot of movements. There was the, during that time in the eighties, there was the English only movement. Uh, Were you in LA back then in the eighties? No, No, I'm from the Midwest. Okay. I was in Milwaukee or Indiana. So there was like this, uh, this proposition that was going to outlaw like foreign languages, foreign, foreign, non, non English languages on like billboards and signage and stuff. So that was like the, yeah, that was like an overarching thing. So there's just a, a lot of animosity towards, you know, um, newcomers at the time. I dealt with it at school. There was a lot of bullying. Why do people get so worked up about people speaking in a different language? I mean, give me a, I, I, it makes me crazy. Yeah. These people who are like so offended by the fact that you would speak a different language or write in a different language. Like, talk about fragile. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is to get someone to that point where they're actively like, angry and trying to change laws or (laughs) incite violence over it i don't know i mean i can understand somebody being it you know people get annoyed by things all the time and that's 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 human everybody gets annoyed by things you know you don't maybe you don't like somebody talking and wondering if they're talking about you i don't know but yeah the the point of of violence or like legal action seems really like really extreme yeah like just relax a protectiveness i guess i don't know yeah so at what age do you think you started to think of yourself as a writer? Like, was this something you were interested in as a kid or is it something you came to later? Oh, uh, that was, yeah, I was always interested in writing. So I think as a kid, I, I loved like just putting together little stories. Um, I was like the, uh, we played like Dungeons and Dragons for a while. So I was the dungeon master, like making up stories for, for the other kids, my brother and our friends. Um, as a kid, my favorite author, as as for a lot of kids, was Stephen King. So I read everything Stephen King wrote, uh, and I would literally like copy his stories, with just changing the protagonist to me, <laughs> and you know just re- just rewrite them, type them out on a typewriter or by hand, and just share them with my friends and stuff. I don't know if they most of them probably didn't read it, but it's still fun to do. So yeah, I, I always loved I always loved writing and, and and storytelling. That's just been something that's been a part of my life. But you had, I mean, uh, I think we're close to the same age. So there's a lot of space between like maybe graduating high school and getting to this collection. Can you talk a little bit about like the creative journey that you went on? I I went into community college. I wanted to study creative writing. So I took my first workshop and I think I was 17 years old. I wasn't, I I know now I wasn't ready for, for critique and workshop. So that was really like ego crushing for me. I didn't know what to do with that because I was sharing stuff that was so personal, but yet trying to deal with criticism about it and how to work with that. So I I stepped away from it because I didn't think I could, it wasn't that, 
it wasn't that clear in my mind why at the time. I just I just knew I didn't like it. So I I studied English English literature instead, and then I went through a, I went through a bunch of stuff. So I I wanted to like I wanted to be a musician for a while, um, and then after that didn't work out. I wanted to work in the music business, and then after that didn't work out. I, I studied psychology <laughs> and I became like a marriage and family therapist for, for a, a really long time. Um, so I worked as a marriage fam, marriage and family therapist uh, in private practice and community mental health for for probably 15 years, I guess. Interesting. And then, yeah. I, that doesn't so show that's the I mean, stuff I did before or in between. I guess that actually that does show up a little bit in the collection. Like in, in not in an explicit way maybe, but it... You can feel like family dynamics being explored in a really like clear and knowing way. I have to imagine that, that I guess what I'm getting at is I have to imagine that line of work could be good fodder for fiction or in a way good training for writing because it forces you to like uh, come into close contact with the intimacies of other people and, and their relationship dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think a couple of things I got from that line of work were one, like a very close observation of people. Cause I think that's like, for me anyway, the way I used to work, the majority of it was a very close and steady observation of my, my clients, um, like suspending judgment and just like really trying to understand or not even understand, but just watch and listen to where they're at. Mm-hmm. I think that helps helps a lot as a fiction writer um coming into things situations imaginary situations without like you know i guess preset judgments or um or like ideas of where this is supposed to go but following in in a very uh natural kind of way you know a few other things like people are never always what they appear i think that's something you you learn in 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 the therapy work like how people present is is the real them but it's also but it's also not the complete them so i think that that's helped a lot too uh, and then i think in terms of like family systems or any systems at all one idea that always always clicked with me was the idea that it, when you have a system which in a family could be like the members of the family if one person changes then that affects everybody else and so i always think about things that way that in a system when one one part changes, the entire system is going to react to it um, in some way or another. And a lot of times it's going to react in a way to try to make up for that that changed person or to try to stop that change from happening. That's kind of the initial reaction. That's funny I would get to this because it's like that's probably what's happening nationally. When something changes, there's that strong reaction to, to compel the status quo to come back. You know, So maybe that's why people hate foreign languages because when they see something new they there's some some at least part of that system that wants to eliminate that new thing and it it seems like that's uh, i don't know if it's universal but it does seem to happen a lot yeah and you know it's funny to think about this sort of thing and you know like changes in systems changes in family systems and the impact that they have on everybody but in particular the impact that they have on kids because Mm -hmm. that is something that you're exploring a lot in this book that it, you know among the most moving aspects of it because kids don't necessarily have the experience or the information yet uh, or the wherewithal to deal with a lot of the heavier stuff that can come at you in life and to be caught up in 
changing systems or to be caught up in these kinds of like darker dynamics of the human and family experience. It's interesting to sort of center those stories on the kids because they don't have necessarily the power or the, the maturity yet to deal with it. And yet they must in some way deal with it. Yeah. That, 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 Lack of choice is, I think, really important uh, to me anyway, like how these stories or how life unfolds for, for young people. It's like, I mean, it's a very real and painful thing to, to deal with for any of us, but it's also like a very interesting thing to investigate in stories. Like what, what, what happens when somebody's put in a, somebody who is very vulnerable is compelled to act in a, in, in their own in their own self-interest or for their own survival in a situation that they they are they're not equipped to deal with you know I think that's always going to be something interesting to to read or to watch and to, to write um, well I think about the you know your personal history the loss of your father when you were so young like your family was already in a destabilized situation as like you say like the apocalypse of, of immigration and then to have this loss in the family system that was so um, heavy and catastrophic. What's interesting to me is to think about you at three, you know, where you don't necessarily have the full awareness of what's going on, but you do feel the loss. And I'm interested as a parent, you know, in the ways in which traumas impact kids you know, stuff that's happened in my family relative to my son's health. Like, how is that impacting my daughter? I think about that, you know, because as much as I want to believe that my wife and I have sort of put on a brave face and have, have, you know, kept things steady, you're never perfect. And I'm sure your mom tried to do the same for you. But do you ever think about that? Like, because you were so young, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did that imprint itself on me? And it had to have, you know, if you feel it in these stories, now that I know this about you, it's like, oh, yeah, that's somewhere in there, right? But I probably in ways that you can't even fully define, I would imagine. It's, yeah, there's a lot to that because, you know, it, it happening so young, it, it, things that happen when you're in, in some ways like pre-verbal, it's, well, it is a lot harder to put language to it because it's much more like a sensory or I guess emotional or relational kind of impact on you. So I don't know. I don't really have answers to that kind of stuff. It is like th- those things are my obsessions as a writer. So that's that's why it comes out in my book. It probably will come out in everything I write in the foreseeable future. And it's one of the things I do wonder about, though. I think it's I look at it in the last story in the collection. There are no more secrets on planet Earth. It's the idea that like there was and there probably still is some ideology around like keeping secrets as a way to protect children so that's like that definitely was something in my family i don't want to general overgeneralize the cultures but i'm sure every culture has some part some population within it that believes that and i don't know if i don't think that helps kids actually in the end you know like keeping secrets because the thing is like for me for sure I still felt all the damage of whatever happened, you know, everything that happened, it's still a part of me. It's ingrained into my, into, into my body. Uh, I feel, you know, I can feel it. I mean, even saying in my mind is not enough. Like you feel it throughout your whole, your whole, uh, your whole visceral system. Right. And not having like a, somebody who's mature and responsible, like kind of walk you through it. 
kind of give you words for it. Um, it give you like some sense to some space to work out like what was my part in it. Uh, maybe that's something that kids. At least this is what we we had we had learned back in when I was in psychology grad school. I don't know if this is still a mainstream idea now, but that a lot of kids take responsibility for bad things that happen, which doesn't actually make any sense at all logically. So there's a lot of theories why kids did this or do this, but it seemed to be something that happened a lot, that when somebody died in a family, the kid would think they were responsible for it. Mm. And if there's not anybody there to tell you no, that wasn't your fault, that might just be a lingering feeling you always have. And when you get older, you might even have the logic to, you know, like counteract that. But the emotional part of it still kind of sits around and like, you know, bites at you or, or gets you in your darker moments. So I don't think it's that open. Yeah. I don't think it's good. I mean, I feel, I, I, I completely understand the instinct to want to protect a child from the darker things. Like, Oh, we don't need to talk about this at the kids four, but it doesn't, I don't think it ever ends well, uh, as difficult as it is. I mean, I think you do have to maybe curate the experience for a young child and use particular language that they can make sense of. You know, you can't just lay it like some super heavy thing on them in the way that you would somebody who's like 35, you know, (laughs) obviously. Yeah, absolutely. But keeping it secret and having the weight of that secret sort of intuitively felt, you know, I'm not entirely sure what damage that does you know you would probably know more about this with your psychology background than i would but i've seen it play out before and i've seen like the after it's usually the after effects you know i'm not seeing it necessarily play out in real time but i'm talking to people who had some big family secret and they never talk about it fondly (laughs) it's never like oh it's never like oh thank god they didn't tell me you know what actually happened to mom or whatever you know it's like they they'd be better off knowing even if it is a heavy truth at least they have the truth you see this sometimes in adoption scenarios too where parents don't tell Mm -hmm. their child that the child is adopted and it's like holy cow like I don't think that's not, I think it's yeah. just, they're better off knowing from the jump than having it, you know, sprung on them when they're 18 years old or something. Totally. Or finding out like, you know, accidentally somehow in their adulthood. But I, that does make sense though, that there's a, there's a reason why people keep these secrets and don't, don't come clean. It's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it just is a hard thing to do. Like when, like the mitigating part, right? Well, how much do you tell a young child? You know, like what will be overwhelming for them and what will be appropriate for them? And then there's like the hard part of how do you, am I like emotionally mature enough to, to guide my kid through this thing that I, I myself barely have a handle on? So I, I get why parents do it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it doesn't work out well in the end. Like it's sort of, uh, there's no easy answer to it, but it, I do think if it can be done, man, that, that would be so much better. Like I would have liked it personally. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I think temperamentally maybe writers and psychologists, people whose line of work has them on a regular basis confronting their interiors and confronting the, the hidden aspects of the human experience that don't, you know, that's the job, right? Is to kind of investigate these things yeah. that are often buried or concealed in some way or difficult Maybe we would be predisposed 
to overcorrect and be like too honest with our kids. I can sometimes worry <laughs> about that with me. <laughs> I'll like say, I'll say something to my daughter and I'll be like, well, maybe that was too much. You know, she's 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? That could, yeah, definitely. That could definitely happen. Yeah. Uh, I think early on I told my kids, hey guys, I'll never lie to you. But then I'm like, dang, maybe I, maybe there's some things they could have like, you know. Yeah, you could have softened uh, the blow. Put off for a little, yeah, I could have softened or, or I could have covered up for a little while. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember having conversations with my daughter about death when she was little. And I was like, you know, maybe too much hubris. I was like, I'm just going to be honest with her about not fully knowing. And I'm going to use this like Buddhist cloud analogy that I really like. Mm. And I just ended up scaring the shit out of her. You know, she was th- like yeah. four years old. And I, you know, I, uh, I just, you know, you take your lumps as a parent, you try your best, and then sometimes you screw you it up. <laughs> it's like you you always screw it up. No, no matter which direction you go, there's always like some, yeah. some, some version of either you're too honest or you're, or you're too secretive, like whatever, whichever way you go, you always screw it up. Yeah. And there's the hubris of like, you know, this corrective attitude that people have, especially when they're parents to young children. So it's like, okay, now I get to do everything the way that I want to do it, that I wish it would have been done for me, all this, and then you still fuck it up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's, that's I think, the humbling, the most humbling part of it is like, maybe you make some sort of like market marginal improvement. Like uh, my friend uh, Mira, her mom years ago said something funny where she was like, you know, every generation, the best you can do is like improve like 3% on whatever generation mm. preceded you. Like that's the best case scenario hopefully you don't regress and like fuck it up and make it worse (laughs) but if you have some sort of you know grand uh vision of being the perfect parent or you know raising your kids just right good luck you know you're gonna you're gonna wind up humbled i think i i totally agree and i I love that three percent uh it, you know, uh, estimate of how much improvement you can hope for. Right. I kind of think it is just about that much, no matter what. We just nudge it forward. Yeah. We nudge it forward, hopefully. Yeah. You know, that's evolution or something. Yeah. Like, you know, but exactly. I think you're going to, like, I, I think where I've come to is that what I do is way more important than what I say. Like, I don't mm. say as much. Like you would think for somebody who does a talk show and may, and may, you know what, maybe my kids would refute this and be like, he won't shut up. <laughs> I really try not to, <laughs> I try not to pontificate too much or to like weigh in and micromanage stuff. I think like if I'm just behaving in a certain way, you know, like calm and uh, you know what I'm getting at, like well-adjusted mm-hmm. <laughs> Like that has as much impact yeah. as anything, you know, that what I'm blabbering at them, they're going to forget a lot of it or just ignore it. You know, I feel like they, if they absolutely are, yeah. I think that's, I think you're exactly right about, I agree with that. I try to, I don't know if I try actively to, to uh, take that route, but I think that's going to be all the impact like that, that thoughtfulness, you know, like, you know, doing things non-reactively, I think really helps a lot. Yeah. And, they, and you can't really tell kids, hey, don't be reactive. Like, how's that? I don't know how that's going to, like, sink into them. But if they see you not being reactive, then, okay, that gives them some sense. Oh, yeah, there's a way to respond to things. Even if you're feeling a certain way, you don't have to, like, act on it, on that impulse immediately. You can you can be thoughtful about it. You can wonder about it. And you can, you know, you can act in a measured way. 
Well, you thought you talk about family systems and how they react, you know, how reactive all the parts of a family system become to a change in one part of the family system. So, you know, in a dramatic uh, example, it would be like a loss. Somebody in the family dies and everybody's reacting to that loss and adjusting and everything. But in a more everyday sense, you know, dad gets really pissed off in the presence of the family. Yeah. You know, it could be something stupid. He could like stub his toe mm-hmm. or, you know, someone spills, right. a, you know, someone breaks a glass or spills orange juice all over the place or whatever it is, you know, yeah. like you, how you respond to those sorts of things can have a big impact. You know, I thought, you know, moods are contagious is, is basically the point. And yeah, if absolutely. I'm, you know, if I'm failing as a dad and I'm like raising my voice or being impatient, I've, I've noticed how it spreads suddenly my kids are yelling (laughs) you know yeah they're yelling or they're scared yeah i mean i think it's like it's a and it there's i mean i've been and i'm like all parents i've been really imperfect too and so i've had those moments where something stupid has happened and i've like you know just reacted in rage in that moment Uh and it's like it's not it may not even have that much to do with the kids but it's like something, I mean, maybe it's like the evolutionary part that you have to re- react more strongly to, ne- to negative or scary things. Like that stuff sticks with them uh-huh. for a long time. Right. Like, a, you know, there could be like dozens of good experiences, you know, that will still be outweighed by that one really <laughs> scary moment. Right. So it's, it's, it's a yeah. fun, that's a fun guilt but to carry around, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. But, but it's, it, it and it, yeah, it's, it definitely is something to carry. Yeah, it is, it is a fun guilt to carry around. But it's also, I don't know, it's part of like another thing to just keep working forward on. Like, hey, yeah, that thing happened, you know. Well, so. I'm, listen, as a marriage and family therapist, you, you should have this pretty nailed down. You, you probably run your ship uh, <laughs> perfectly, right? <laughs> you would think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my wife's a teacher too, so it's sort of like either the, the the optimal setup or like the nightmare setup for kids. Right, right. Yeah, we, we all do the best we can, hopefully. But uh, I am wondering before I let you go, if you are working on, a, do you have a novel that you're now cooking up, or are you working on more stories? Is there something else in the works? Um, I am working on a novel now, and I, I've I've gotten through the first draft of it, which is which I've done before, but I feel. I've gotten through a first draft that I like, so that's that's new for me. Um, it's a it's an Asian American Western set in the 1860s. Uh, uh-huh. It's a it's a Asian American. It's like a Chinese uh, Chinese Union soldier and his white brother. So they're they're the same mom, different fathers, and they're uh, they're on a caper. So okay, is there? As much may as I, I ask? Is there a historical like an like a, a actual historical foundation for the story? For uh, not precisely, there there were some Chinese Americans that fought in the Civil War on both sides, um, but not not at the level that these this guy is. So no, it's not it's not an act based on an actual person. Did you have to do a lot of research? Yeah, for sure, like tons. I'm still doing it, like everything. Like, you know, I mean, the history part is a huge part of it, but even like learning horses. Because it's like right. I don't know anything about horses. I grew up in Arcadia, which is which at the time was very much uh, 
the horse sanity to horse track driven economy. Right. But and a lot of my friends, their, their parents were in the horse business, but I was allergic to hay, so I didn't have much ex- <laughs> like personal firsthand experience with it. Right. But so I'm learning. Yeah. So and I have to learn about like guns and stuff, like all the weaponry muskets. of the time, which is muskets. Yeah. There's something. There's yeah. something funny. So things like that. There's something absurd when you watch these old movies, like Civil War movies. Uh, or Revolutionary War movies, the absurdity of watching people deal with muskets, right. you know, yeah. and also just like the horrific, yeah. how horrific to be like, you're lined up basically like 50 feet apart and you're sitting there trying to, uh, yeah. that's, I, I don't think that's something I would have been good at, you know, under pressure is dealing with, I'm not good with <laughs> yeah. machines, you know, that would have driven me crazy. Sadly, everybody was bad at that, but, and it, it's really interesting to see like how this drove the, 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 the uh, the trajectory of, of weaponry, like when we went from muskets to like machine guns in the course of the Civil War, like the the Gatling gun was developed at the time, so something that you can just crank out like you know hundreds of bullets at a time. It's a yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit scary how how the ingenuity of man can be like you know put on something so devastating. Well, yeah, we're talking on we're, we're having this conversation on November 11th, which is armistice day mm-hmm. and kurt vonnegut's 100th birthday that was a big thing for him you know like, happy birthday kurt yeah well just like the you know the like the the invention of the gatling gun the invention of you know uh industrial warfare machines the nuclear bomb all this stuff it's like well maybe our best brains should focus on things that have uh saner outcomes wouldn't that be nice <laughs> that would be nice that would be nice yeah well i i'm excited for uh I'm excited for the Western and uh, wish you well on it. It's been really fun to talk to you and to meet you. And I'm glad that we got to shine a light on If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home, uh, this great story collection of yours. So congratulations on it. I hope you enjoy you know, this moment and uh, yeah. you know, the publication success. Hey, thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate it. This is really fun. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Pete Sue. His new story collection is called If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home, winner of the Red Hen Fiction Prize, available now from Red Hen Press. It is the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Pete Sue on the internet. His website is peterhzsue.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Peter H. Z. Sue. He's also on Instagram. One more time, the new collection is called If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. Go get your copy right away. Go sign up for the TNB Book Club at thenervousbreakdown.com. The Other People podcast is offered freely. 800 episodes and counting. If you would like to support this show, I would appreciate that. You can do so at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod for as little as one dollar a month you can support the show it's easy patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you would like to sign up for my email newsletter my once a week email newsletter my simple friendly informative fun email newsletter you can do that at other ppl.com or over at bradlisty.com it's the same newsletter in both places. If you would like to write to me, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. You can also DM the show on social, on Twitter at otherppl or on Instagram. 
The Other People podcast has its own app. Did you know that? There's an official Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. It's a great way to listen. I'm telling you. People who know, know. The Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel. Go to YouTube and search for the show by name. Watch the podcast. You can see us. Search for the show by name at YouTube, Other PPL. And then when you get there, when you get to the channel, click the subscribe button. Press it, click it, smash it. It's free. The Other People podcast is on TikTok. So if you want to watch the highlights, go to TikTok. You could be the show's first follower. I'm just learning TikTok. I'm going to go to Lee Stein's workshop, booktalkforwriters.com. Sign up and join me. Let's figure out how to uh, make a billion dollars on TikTok. Next week on this program, I'm going to be talking with Kyle Spencer, a journalist with bylines in the New York Times and Politico, all, all, all sorts of different places. She has a new book out called Raising Them Right. The Untold Story of America's Ultra-Conservative Youth Movement and Its Plot for Power. That one is is, uh, out from Echo Books. I'm excited to talk to Kyle Spencer. I'm a little terrified, to be honest with you, to talk to Kyle Spencer about this book, but I think it's going to be very fascinating. So tune in for that one next week. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you shortly. (laughs) 